future times are in your hands. And we ask, according to your will, that you provide a good result. Lord, open our eyes as we now turn to your word and we see your rebuke long written down for rebellious Israel, that we might take it to heart and that we might live knowing the truth that you are alone the Lord and you alone do wonderful things. Help us now as we turn to your word and give us your spirit. Amen. Okay, we're in Isaiah 48. The start of Isaiah 48. So we are in a three-part section where God, in chapter 46, I believe it was, rebuked uh, the, the gods of the Babylonians. You know, the, the way that they are just a burden and a weight. And then last time we saw uh, the people of Babylon who worship those gods, they will fall down in judgment because of their rebellious sinfulness. And he also mentioned the foolishness of their their gods and how helpless their gods are. Now he gets to stubborn Israel. When you read through this chapter, you hear him not calling out in, you know, sympathy, but rather rebuking with harsh terms their, really, the way that they've deceived themselves into thinking they're okay. Oh yeah, we worship God, we're okay, the Lord is good, and God is kind of bringing on them, you should know better than what you've done, and you really need to listen to your God. I've announced it and made known it to you. Now is your chance. So Isaiah 48 will close this three-part section of God rebuking those who don't listen or those who turn away. And then if we get to chapter 49, we'll start a whole new theme and a whole new section. So God had just given a harsh warning on the judgment that would fall in Babylon. Upon hearing this, Israel might become proud Babylon's fate was a severe punishment and sudden downfall. If such a severe fate falls on Babylon in its pride, what ought God to do for Israel in its rebellion? He was refining their faith, judging the unbelievers and calling the remnant to repent and trust in him. Let's read at verses 1 and 2. Listen to this, O house of Jacob. You who are called by the name Israel and come from the line of Judah. You who take oaths in the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth or righteousness. You who call yourselves citizens of the holy city and rely on the God of Israel. The Lord Almighty is his name. going to... We're going to pause there with just that address. Um, God's addressing the people of Israel. He gives us a sevenfold title for the people of Israel and Judah. Although it all sounds good, the Lord points out the crack in their armor, the thing that makes their claims crumble. Identify their sin and explain how we can fall into the same type of trap. Being proud? Yep. Certainly there, there's a pride, you know, they, they're saying, you come from the, we come from the line of Israel, we're called on the name of Israel, we call on the citizens of the holy city. But there's a problem. All those are good things, right? Seven things that are listed here. Called by the name Israel, from the line of Judah, take oaths in God's name, invoke God's name, call yourself citizens, rely on God. All that's good, but what's the problem? Not in truth. 
not in truth. It's like when Jesus said, not all who say, Lord, Lord, will be saved. It's, it's not simply enough to take on the name of God or call or make an oath using God's name or invoke God's name. You know, you can say in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all you want, but if you don't say that with faith or in truth, it's no good, right? So the, the thing that makes all their claims crumble is they lack truth and righteousness. So they, they said the right things, but without faith they were just going through the actions, saying the right things, claiming the right things. It's not simply enough to belong to the right church or the right family heritage, as they had here. You know, they had a believing heritage. Or to call yourself a child of God, what matters is faith. And faith is more than simply an outward confession. That, that's how it shows itself in one way. But faith is putting your trust in the Lord. Not just saying it, but actually trusting him. And it's in your heart. And the Lord knows what's in your heart. Only the Lord knows what's in your heart. Right. So obviously we can judge people's confession. If they say they don't believe in God, you can go off of that. Or if they live like an unbeliever, you can go off of that by the way they speak with their words and actions. But ultimately, yeah, God sees it. How can we fall into the same type of trap? Okay, just mindlessly saying the words. Yeah, just going through the motions. So, you know, if you have a, a claim that, you know, I, I worship the Lord, but you aren't really thinking about what you're doing, you're just yeah, doing it. Just it. So I want to make sure we actually take to heart the words. Just in attendance as a regular routine, married couple get married, take the kids to church and Sunday school, and it's the same thing. Right. Their heart's not in it, they just want to belong someplace. Right, if you make it simply a checklist or, hey, we've got our membership card, then... Mm -hmm. What really matters is faith, not simply being there or saying the right things or going through the motions. So yeah, we certainly can fall into the same trap. Um, think of how easy it would be for someone to think, well, my parents and my family are faithful Christians and I belong to a faithful Christian church, so I'm covered. Your grandmother's prayers. Yeah, because of my, my family or because we go to or because, yeah, it's so easy to lose in truth and righteousness on our own. All right, so that's the address. That's how God addresses the people of Israel here. They are, you might almost, I guess, summarize it as being hypocritical. They're not actually having genuine faith with their actions and their confession and the things they invoke and do. Let's read what God says to them now. Verse 3. I foretold the former things long ago. My mouth announced them, and I made, the, I made them known. Then suddenly I acted, and they came to pass. So God's making a claim that he foretold something and it happened. Can we list some occasions in Bible history which God had foretold future events to his people? Don't eat of the tree or you will surely die. Yeah, go back to Adam and Eve right at the very beginning. Yeah. I told you, when you eat of it, you will die. Give me father of many nations. Abraham? Yeah, so 400 years before Israel even became a free, independent nation, they were, their forefather, Abraham, was told that would happen. And look what came to pass. Um, as they were coming out of Egypt, um, it was basically said, so God fulfilled that they were as numerous as the stars. If you look at the census at that time, 400 years later, this is 
you know, mark, remarkable in ancient society because cities weren't that big back then and just living was a struggle. But they had grown from 70 shortly after Abraham's time, you know, the third generation, all the way to about 2 million because there's 700,000 men that were counted. So if you add the woman and the children to those 700,000 men, roughly about 2 million strong in that many generations. So that was God fulfilling his word. Other things God foretold that he fulfilled. Yeah. Flood? Yeah, the flood. God told Noah their days will be 120 years. And the flood came. Just as he told Noah, who was called a preacher of righteousness. Yeah, we could obviously keep on going. Just think about how he told them they'd take the promised land and the cities crumbled and fell. Uh, the, the plagues on Egypt. All those things God long before had told them he would do. Um, Elijah said it wouldn't rain. It didn't rain. You just, God foretold and showed that he can foretell the future. Let's read verse 4. Let's see, why, why did God do this over and over, telling them what was going to happen ahead of time? For, verse 4, I knew how stubborn you were. The sinews of your neck were iron. Your forehead was bronze. Okay, now can you give two concrete pictures for stubbornness that describe Israel? It's your neck sinews were iron and your forehead bronze. So you got a really heavy head. Picture it's you know it's slow for you to look around and to turn. You you got a way a way that's set and you're gonna be stuck in your way. The stubbornness. You're probably familiar with that stiff-necked imagery. The rulers, the the. Um the preachers, the Pharisees, the Sadducees set up certain laws that were given by Moses, but they were cruel and they did not have compassion for even their own people, less more than anybody from the outside. Sure. Later on, as you get this group that's called the Pharisees during Jesus' time, uh, they start to demonstrate they will not listen to Jesus because they have their own rules and their own ways and they're, they're relying on those rules. Can you give any other examples from Bible history that show the stubbornness of Israel? They wouldn't listen to any of the prophets. Yeah, look at all the prophets, really. And the prophets generally don't get a good reception. Uh, over and over you see the prophets are quite often rejected, especially rejected by the kings and the rulers, sometimes even by the priest, just turning against the, the true faithful prophets. So that definitely demonstrates their stubbornness. Even when the, the prophets did miracles, still would not listen. Talking about prophets, after Jesus, you know, all the miracles he did. All the miracles that were done by Christ and fulfilled by him, still they would not believe. Yep. And then think even after the time of Christ with the apostles. What's Stephen saying as he's being stoned? Uh, this is from uh, Acts 7. Stephen said to the religious leaders of Israel, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. You are doing just what your fathers did, which the prophets did. Which of, your fa uh, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who prophesied the coming of the righteous one. And now you have become betrayers his betrayers and murderers, you who received the law as transmitted by angels, but did not keep it. So that's 
his dying speech really is he's out crying out, you're just like your spiritual forefathers, stubbornly refusing to listen to God. Let's put this together now, reading verse 4 through 6 as a, a chunk. Someone want to read that section? Verses 4 through 6. Because I know that you are stubborn and your neck is iron and your forehead is bronze, therefore I declare to you long ago, I announced it to you before it occurs, so you could not claim my idol caused them, my carved image and cast idol controlled them. You have heard it, observe it all. Will you not acknowledge it? From now on, I will announce new things to you, hidden things that you have not known. Thanks. Okay, so I don't know if you guys are familiar with many of the progressive historical critical people that uh, take the text and they're critical of the text of the scripture and say, well, that didn't really get written until after events happened. So they'll, they'll look at something that was prophesied, like, for example, in the book of Daniel, the four kingdoms that would rise and come and go after Daniel, and they say, well, obviously that couldn't have been written until the Romans came on the scene. And they just kind of looked back in history and made it into a prophecy. So that, that's the approach that people often have towards Scripture. They, they deny the miracles. So God's purpose in foretelling past events, as he says here, was to bring people to acknowledge he is the true God and he alone. So if progressive Christians are trying to explain away the Bible's miracles as merely exaggerated or natural events, what can you find in this section that refutes that? It says, from now on I will announce new things to you, hidden things you have not known. Yeah, and God did that. For example, we see in this book, Cyrus. They didn't know about a man named Cyrus. They didn't know that the Persians would overthrow the Babylonians. That was written before it happened. What about when a progressive Christian says, well, you know, those, those things that happened to Pharaoh, those ten plagues, they're all just natural events. And they just all got exaggerated and became myth. How, how would you respond according to what God says here? Okay, you can throw on, throw on top of all the plagues, the, the crossing of the Red Sea, you know, these events that are claims that don't really fit any natural explanation. Sure, you could say, okay, the plague of locusts, the plague of frogs, perhaps could have occurred in a natural way, but to that extreme. And then, yeah, the crossing of the sea, certainly. Yeah. Well, just verse 6, you have heard my predictions and seen them fulfilled, but you refuse to admit it. Yeah. I think that's just the, the stubborn, sinful human nature. So it's not just what God does, he said it ahead of time, and they refuse to acknowledge his predictions. So what people are saying nowadays is nothing new. They've been refusing to see and admit it all the way back in Isaiah's time. Yep. People think they're so-called progressive because they can examine the, the events in Scripture and say, well, that, that didn't really happen, or it was written after the fact, and yet that's always been happening. Think about when Jesus rose from the dead. Didn't he say that on the third day he would rise again? He said it ahead of time, and yet still they were so stubborn, so stiff-necked that even when there were reports of the empty tomb, they still tried to explain it away or refused to believe it, many of them. Yeah, and there are other things too. Um, you could look at Jesus foretelling the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. The prophecies of Daniel stand out, the prophecies of Isaiah 
things that would come ahead of time, which God kept foretelling would come. People refuse in their stubbornness, just like those before them. But God foretold long before they happened. And I don't want to get into the whole textual argument, but there is a lot of evidence that these records, these books did exist and were written when they were written. Not simply as some people claim centuries after the events occurred. Okay, verse seven, he says, they are created now and not long ago. You have not heard of them before today, so you cannot say, yes, I knew of them. Remember the, the, the they, our subject here is the, the predictions, right? So God's saying, my predictions, I just formed that right now. So you can't say, oh yeah, I heard that prediction before. Uh, someone, for example, couldn't say in Daniel's time, oh yeah, I heard of those four kingdoms. I heard that predicted. Or I heard of the, the ten hills of Rome and the, the boastful hill of Rome that would stand out and be you know, the center of the Roman Empire. I, I heard that prediction before. No, not before Daniel foretold it. Or you, you can't say, focus on the Christ. I, I heard that there would be a suffering servant who would take on the sins of the people and who would still see the light of life and bless all nations. No one heard of that before Isaiah made clear that prophecy in chapter 53. Yeah, all these things are made clear by God long ahead of time. So I put down here, God's prophecies and promises are original. He does not mimic other existing prophecies. He is the first to reveal them. Can you choose one other religion you have familiarity with and estimate how much of that religion has original prophecy? That's proved true. So let's, let's name another world religion besides Christianity. One that you're maybe somewhat familiar with. I want you to choose any other religion you're f familiar with and estimate how much of that religion has original prophecy that proved true. The Muslims copied off of the Christian uh, prophecies. Sure. Integrated it into what they wanted. Right, we know for. They say Muhammad is the prophet who got instruction from God, but actually he's just repeating what the Christians were saying, and then they modified it to please themselves. Yep, they, they definitely adopted and modified the Christian and Jewish faith. Uh -huh. And actually, even the idea of the prophet and the prophecy and all that. So yeah, if you take Muslims, is there an original prophecy that has proved true? We know for a fact their writings came about in the, was it the 6th century, 7th century, that they started formulating their writings. So long, long after the, the Bible had been finished for many centuries before it even came about. Yep. And the Mormons, they took Christian beliefs and rewrote it, and that's in the early uh, right, so the the Mormons speak of, you know, the Book, Book of Mormon, fairly tame, the history of the Israelites coming to America and that sort of stuff. But that was written long after it took place. Right. It's just reaching back. It's nothing original. It's coming up with something that it's claiming to be true as a prophecy, but it cannot write a prophecy that unless by chance comes true. And really, so many religions aren't based off a of prophecy for that reason. Because over time, they're shown to be false, uh, their prophecies. 
or they're based on law and lack promises, lack prophecy, and they distort the one true religion. I think we kind of see that. We mentioned two already, um, Latter-day Saints and Muslims, they distort what already had been written down, uh, the Christian Bible, and they take those things which are centered on Christ and they make them centered on something else, on either self or another prophet or person. And you're not going to see a tenant of other religions, other world religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, you're not going to see them claiming a prophecy that came true because they simply could not prophesy things. Only the true God does. So that's, that's why this stands out so much in Isaiah here. He says, hey, I, I created this now. You've not heard them before me. You cannot say I knew of that. Every time God spoke and made a prophecy, he was the first one to make that prophecy. That's quite a thought, isn't it? No one else could have made that prophecy before God and known it. Okay, how about we take the next section? Verses 8 and 9. You have neither heard nor understood. From of old your ear has not been open. Well do I know how treacherous you are. You were called a rebel from birth. For my own namesake I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you so as not to cut you off. Remember, the subject here is those who call themselves by the name Israel and invoke the name of the Lord. Look how he's describing them. Treacherous. Treacherous, a rebel from birth, ears that are not open, not understanding, deserving of having God cut them off because they're basically cutting God off. So if Israel had been rebellious since birth... Why did they have God's blessings? We got like five answers at once. They're still waiting for the Messiah. Okay. They're waiting for God to keep His promised prophecy of a Messiah. The country for his namesake. Yeah, He says here, yeah, for the sake of my praise, for my namesake, God had made a promise. He had promised, you know, we mentioned earlier today, Abraham, that his descendants be numerous, that through Abraham all nations would be blessed. He had promised before Isaiah's time, where Isaiah's about 700, so 300 years earlier, he had promised a king who would sit on David's throne. Even though there were many godless kings sitting on that throne, God wouldn't break that promise. Yeah, for his name's sake. It's the same with all of us. If we have any blessings from our God, it's not because we deserved it. It's because for the sake of his praise, for the sake of his name, he gives us grace and blessing. And it's not by works or what anyone's done. Other thoughts up to this point? So we got a key point here that will lead us to what he says next in chapter 48. God's saying, I haven't destroyed you, Israel, even though you're rebellious, even from birth. You know, so that you know, as a nation, even it was founded, but really we can say with they can say with David and all sinners can from birth. You know, I've surely been sinful from birth from the time my mother conceived me. But still, God is faithful, keeps His promise, and that's what He was doing for Israel. That's why Israel is not being destroyed the same way that Babylon is going to be destroyed. He has a greater plan. So. Let's read verse 10 to see, 10 and 11 to see how he's working that plan. 
See, I have refined you through, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. My own, my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. Yeah. Thanks. Let his name be disgraced by their rebelliousness, but he's put them to the fire over and over again to get them to repent. Yeah, isn't that quite a picture? I've refined you in the furnace of affliction. So God's got this people that he's, he said, I'm going to put my name on you, you're going to be my people. And because they're rebellious, God's like, I can't let them disgrace my name, so what am I going to do with them? I'm going to have to train them, teach them, give them affliction, help them to learn what is good and right and to repent and turn from evil. So, yeah. It's a loving parent who is basically refusing to give up on a rebellious child because he says, you know what, you belong to the family and I'm not going to let you fall in disgrace for this family. I'm going to train you. I'm going to make you face hardship. I'm going to make you face tough times so that you can grow and realize the truth. Yeah. And also it repeats there, verse 11. For my own sake. For my own sake. Pretty emphatic there. God's not doing this for the sake of, oh, Israel deserves God's attention and time. He's like, no, I'm not going to let my glory crumble with you, even though you're going to try to crumble it. So yeah, God was refining his people through the Babylonian exile. That's what he's saying here. That furnace of affliction that he's giving them is going to be the fact that they'll be conquered, the city will be destroyed. Now let's read Isaiah 1, 18 to 27. That, that ties in here. So we've got to open to the beginning of his book. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Okay, so you got a promise there, right? God's saying, I'm going to Take your ugly, you know, blood-stained sin, really, and make them white like snow. And isn't that interesting how he's saying, let's reason together. Here's what I'm going to do for you, Israel. Now, if you read on, if you're willing and obedient, you will eat from the best of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I'm going to, I'm going to read on all the way to verse uh, 27. See how the faithful city has become a harlot. She was once full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore, so here's the big what God is going to do. Therefore, the Lord... The Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel, declares, Ah, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. Sounds like the refining fire, right? I will restore your judges as in days of old, your counselors as the beginning. Afterwards, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. So this idea of refining is kind of almost an introductory thought to the whole prophecy of Isaiah. God saying, Israel, 
I'm going to fix you. I'm going to, first, I'm going to take your sins away, but you're going to be rebellious, and I'm going to have to refine you and remove your, your dross, as he calls it, your impurities. Yeah, think about what's going to happen to them as they go off into exile. They're going to spend 70 years looking back on what, what they did to lead up to that point. But you can see that now when he says, come now, let us reason together. I mean, they won't even reason with the Lord that's more than a human person. Right. And they're doing the same thing again. Let's see if we can apply this to our life. So use either your life or maybe if you want some other biblical accounts to describe other ways God refines his people besides sending the Babylonians. How else does he refine his people? Well, young Christians, like when I started, he had to cut away all the old stuff, which was tough, because that's an Armenian child of alcoholics. I had a lot of guards up and uh, very mistrusting, and I had to be cut away from my old habits so that I could have a testimony of victory. Right. Sometimes there's either uh, someone has an addiction in their life, a companion, or association in their life that's pulling them away from the Lord, and they have to lose, break away, die to self. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, in order for that to happen, God does something to sever that, and it's sometimes painful or hard for that severance to take place, to die to self, uh, but God refines us. And we recognize only usually when we look back, right? When we, when we reflect years later that, what I faced was actually God doing that for a good purpose in my life. Um, I think Peter, when you look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, he talks about our, our faith, which is more precious than gold. All these various trials of all sorts of kinds he describes are for the good of our faith, and that God sends these things for his people. And in the end, what happens? Uh, much like we saw at the start of Isaiah's prophecy and here in chapter 48, God wants us to give him glory, to, to let go of all the sinful things we've grabbed onto and to glorify him in the end. Other thoughts up to verse uh, 11 here? I, I have that Peter, and I thought this was interesting, it said, at the very end, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Right. So right now we praise God as we face the refining, but what's God's ultimate goal for us? And just as it was for Israel, it's to praise him forever in his eternal kingdom when Christ returns. So when Christ comes in all of his glory, the end goal God has is that we're glorifying and praising him for bringing us through our life, through the trials, trusting in him to live with him in his kingdom. Yeah. Keep that goal in mind. When, when you're facing calamity or trouble and you're thinking, oh, is God using this to strengthen me? Keep in mind the end goal of standing before his throne with, with all the saints in glory and Christ in all of his glory. Other thoughts about this section? How about we take some time to review now? So take a look once again as we review here verses 1 through 11. Prophecy is real. Miracles are real. God intervenes in history. Yet not all are willing to admit it. We read in verse 6, You have heard these things. Look at them all. Will you not admit them? Break down the difference between the ancient people of Israel 
who gave credit to their idols for destroying Babylon, and anti-Christian intellectuals who deny that Isaiah actually wrote these things ahead of time. So you're going to have people in ancient Israel that are going to deny these things, and they won't admit God wrote this ahead of time. They'll say, oh no, it's the God of Cyrus that saved us. Or we were saved because we did this, or some other superstitious thing, and God's saying, won't you admit it? I, I did it ahead of time. Is there any difference between that and people today who are intellectuals and actually deny Isaiah wrote this? A lot of the similarities there, aren't they? Work righteousness is a good example of, you know, I can do it myself. Okay. There's a big similarity between both of that is not relying on God, relying on self. Yeah. I, I don't need God to do this for me. Even why would he foretell that? Yeah. Yeah, both are denying that God actually could foretell and does foretell the future, that prophecy is real. And both are really trying to get away from submitting to, yielding to God as the true only God, and both want to do their own work righteousness. Whether you're an ancient Israelite worshiping the gods of you know, the, the Medes and Persians, or you're a modern day intellectual denying that these prophecies ever could have been real. How about this? Break down the difference between the ancient people of Israel who gave credit to their idols for destroying Babylon and the Christians. And so not just the intellectuals against the Christians, but the progressive so-called Christians who give credit to scientific explanations for miracles. How many times has science been corrected throughout the ages? <laughs> okay. Yeah. So... The, the things unknown to us that science reveals sometimes has to correct itself. That's a very good point. Um, a book that we were made to read in college was Scientific Revolutions. This, this eye-opening picture of how many times science declared this is truth and then said later on, but, but now this is truth, but now this is truth, but now this is truth. The earth is flat. Right. I, I don't know how many people believe that, as many people claim in the you know, 500 years ago. But before them, I, I should say, the people thought that they were going to go off the end of the earth if they just kept going out in the ocean, you know. The Vikings thought that until they reached Greenland. There's so many um, ideas that science gets wrong, so... Yeah, progressive Christians who are turning to science, they're, one, mistaken because science is not absolute truth. It's interpreting the evidence. Science always has to interpret the evidence, come to a, a theory or conclusion, but... Yeah, when you compare them to the ancient Israelites worshiping their, their Babylonian gods, just they're putting their trust in something beside God, right? So either, either your trust is going to be in scientific revolutions and the current scientific consensus, because science doesn't always agree. You know, there, there are going to be scientists who, agree, scientists who agree with the Christian interpretation and accept the miraculous and still can understand how God worked. And there'll be scientists who don't. So where do you put your trust and both of those are placing their trust in places outside of the Lord. Like the Mormons, they redo their prophecies over and over again. They get new revelations. They get new revelations. Sure. Progressive revelation that doesn't build off of the old revelation, but actually nullifies it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
the, the science of this age is a god. <laughs> and when people come from one area, I just as I was laying in my hospital bed, <laughs> I didn't see a letter. As I was laying in my hospital bed, one of the um, nurses I had, a male nurse, who uh, I was able to talk to several times, and he seemed to enjoy talking about what I believed. And his big stumbling block was, you know, how he, he said he was happy he found a book that talked about how God could use evolution to do this. And uh, it, it, it was helping him to, to bring together all of the things he knows. But I said, I'm going to blow your mind. I believe God can do it in seven days. <laughs> and he said, well, he could do it in seven seconds <laughs> if he wanted to. But he, even though he recognizes that fact, he still feels the obligation to, to bring all of the science he's learned and thinks is true. And hopefully he'll come to church here some Sunday because I did invite him. Sure. Yeah, so he, he was one of those Christians, and this is part of progressive Christianity too, that thinks you can take the best of both worlds and let science, you know, as it stands, even though it's written against Scripture, to serve Scripture. And really, science should be there to serve Scripture, not rein, reinterpret Scripture. Yeah. So he was taking the ideas of evolution and found someone that was trying to reconcile that with the Bible, which is very clear. God made this world in six days, and he rests on the seventh day. And trying to make that fit evolution, he, he's trying to give science its throne next to the throne of Scripture. Yeah. When really science, it should serve Scripture. It doesn't deserve a throne next to Scripture. They don't want a real science faith. They want something that was written by somebody else to prove what they think is right. Right. And you're, you're kind of, you're, that's a good point too. You're, you're missing out on faith because you want... He wants his faith to stand on science, not to stand on the word of God alone. So you start to lose, you know, what, what he says here. Will you not look at this? God wrote, wrote this down. Will you not admit it? You can only admit that by faith, mm -hmm. that God foretold and it was true. And the only other camp, the only other option is unbelief to say, no, God didn't foretell that or scripture just got lucky and it wasn't really accurate. Those are the only two camps you can really be in on this issue is God foretold it ahead of time and he's true, or God didn't. And one of them takes faith. The other one is against faith. Verse 11, uh, we read, For my own sake, for my own sake I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? Can we give uh, at least three examples of ways that the Lord's name is defamed? by those who bear his name? <clears throat> well, we do not show compassion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we looked in chapter one of Isaiah today, and you saw the judges weren't practicing justice, and they were t accepting bribes and overlooking the, the downtrodden. That defames the name of the God of compassion mm -hmm. when his people who carry his name don't have compassion. LBS. Okay. The Church of Jesus Christ. That's another way. Yeah, that you can invoke. They deny his divinity, his true, his true divinity. Right. So person. the the Latter Day Saints invoke God's name, like we saw at the start of this chapter, but not in truth. So they they use the name of Christ, 
And yet they attach so many false teachings that are anti-Christ to that teaching. That defames God's name. That's true. Good. Yeah. Preachers like Joel Osteen. Right. Yeah. Joel's, Joel Osteen is one prominent example of you know, the, the prosperity preachers who, who tell you that you know, if you just do this, God will bless you and it will go well for you. And many Christians are finding out that's not true because he's preaching a theology that doesn't have the cross and doesn't point people to the cross. So he's defaming God's name. Yeah, any, any false teacher that says this is what God says and strays from the truth is defaming God's name. We are defaming God's name by our, our failure to live up to uh, his image and by the example that he's given in his word and false teachers outside the church defame his name. I want you to, before we finish this section, scan through these verses, 48 verses 1 through 11. Find examples of Israel's sin and God's grace as you scan through these 11 verses. Let's break it down. So what do we find for, let's start with Israel's sin. Rebellious. No. Rebellious, even rebels from birth, right? Mm -hmm. But he's going to, for his sake, God's sake, he's going to delay his wrath. He's going to refine them. Okay, so we're getting to some grace, yeah. The grace is even though they're rebellious, he's going to refine that out of them. He's going to take Israel as a whole and give it what it needs, refinement to lead them to repentance, to turn them from rebellion. And I heard you, you, Pat, you were getting to the start there, right? The not in truth. So one of their sins was, you could say, hypocrisy or going through the motions instead of in truth and in faith. Yeah. How do you see God's grace? He's calling them out for it, right? Yeah, he's still, he's saying, I'm going to tell you new things even though you invoked my name in, in falsehood, I'm still going to continue to give you prophecy so that, uh, and that's the thing that he says, so that you cannot say, yes, I knew of them, but rather, so you know. Yeah. He says, I knew how stubborn you were, but I told you these things so that you could not say my idols did them. Would you not admit them, that I told you these things? Just the way he deals with them, by giving them prophecy, even though they, many of them won't acknowledge him for that. That's the God of grace. He's so compassionate and loving to us, even when we do the dumbest things. Because you see our light today in these things, the dumb things the Israelites did. We do those dumb things also. Yeah, we need to see ourselves here, don't we? When God tells Israel, you were called a rebel from birth, we were born sinful. When God tells them that they didn't hear or understand, their ears were not open, think of the times that we didn't listen to God's word as we ought to. So we need to recognize the God of compassion for his name's sake. He's, he's given this to us today to read, to take to heart. Uh, this has been preserved throughout history so we can still study it, meditate on it, ponder God foretold these things so that we would admit and acknowledge he alone is God. That's all working of grace for sinners to just to give us his word and to reveal prophecy for our sake, to have it. Good. Any other examples? Yeah. 
He says he won't let his name himself be defamed or give his glory to another. And he can't, or we're all doomed. And he, pretty much the way he treated Israel was to make sure <laughs> everything fell into place. Yeah, verses uh, 9 and 10, I think, really narrow on that, right? I delay my wrath for the sake of my praise. I hold it back from you to not cut you off. That's, that's grace that causes God to say, I'm not going to pour out my wrath right now. I'm going to delay it so that in the end you will praise me. So if you see someone who's straying from the truth or someone who's got a stiff neck and they're turning from God, God's delaying his wrath so that in the end they can praise him. That's grace. Uh, that God would want that person to be the one who would praise him. Yeah. Good. So I thought that'd be a good way to, to finish reviewing this chapter, to, to make sure we see it's all about Israel's sin and God's grace, and really apply that to ourselves, our sin and the God of all grace. Okay, we're going to have God give one more plead as this closes out. Um, this, as I mentioned, closes out a section. So we're going to have a lot of different topics, but the, the overarching topic, I don't know if your title, if your handout has a title there, but I finally came up with one. The Lord pleads for Israel to pay close attention. That's what I put for verses 12 to 22, which we'll look at next. So we'll, we'll pick it up on the top of page 37 when we meet again at verse 12. And I'm thinking probably next time we'll, we'll get to start really neat new section that's the second great servant servant song about the Messiah. Why don't we close with a prayer regarding what we looked at in the word today. Lord, we see the, the rebellious nature of the people Israel. As they invoked your name, they did all the motions and called on your name, and yet not always in truth and in faith. Lord, forgive us for the times that we simply went through the motions or did not respond with faith. We praise and thank you that you have foretold so many prophecies, so many truths ahead of time that we might acknowledge and we might believe, that we might see with the Apostle John, these things were written that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. Help us to believe and to see that in your word. Amen. Amen.